How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't see that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. This is the podcast that celebrates the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm Justin Bishop. And I'm the growth on your torso. My name is Todd A. Davis, and thank you for joining us for some much-needed therapy in this third entry of our series titled The New Flesh, The Body Horror of David Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, are, you the, are you the torso growth or like that guy's like neck thing, that like... Well, I I like the I like she opens the thing like wings and it's coming out of her. So you're you're the fetus. You're her rage. You're you're the rage fetus. I'm the (laughs) real. Let me go ahead and update my profile. No uh, longer writer comedian. (laughs) Just the rage fetus. Just certified (laughs) rage fetus. That is a actually great bio for your certified rage fetus. Oh man, what what part did we say? This is part. Part three, yep, part three of six. Three. So after this, we'll be halfway through this series yes. uh, on David Cronenberg. Obviously, not his entire filmography because he's got about after after this series is done. There's probably another ten Cronenberg movies that we could talk about, and we probably will one day down the line. But you know, we got other things to move on to after this, so we'll we'll revisit him. But yeah, it's bumming yeah. me out. I'm still really digging the guy. I never realized how much I liked him. Yeah, I'm probably. I'll I'll be honest. I'm probably going to continue watching more david cronenberg movies once the series is done just to keep the keep the train going you know because i yeah i i like the vibe i like the vibe of his movies they're they're incredibly unique i think there's something about them i mean regardless of like the plot they just don't feel like anyone else's movies like they're they're kind of dry but not in a like boring way i don't, I don't know how to describe it it's like because it really is just like a a visceral feeling that feels very unique. I was only familiar with the fly onward. So this has been really interesting for me just to see kind of how it started to see. Yeah. So this is watching like the origins of. And yeah, we're kind it, of leading up to the fly, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, he, he does some other movies before then that were successful as far as mainstream audiences go. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. fly is definitely the culmination of that. So it feels like everything we're doing between now and then is kind of him working his way towards that. Right. And like hearing his background and how he approaches it, it kind of watches. I think there's an element of it watching with a scholastic feel to it. Not, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say it's like sitting in a classroom, but like, I feel like you, it opens your mind to some maybe pseudoscience, but maybe more fringe science of like, Hey, this is, you know, these, these things are out there, but not too far out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's fringe science in that, in that it's, I mean, it's completely made up. (laughs) <laughs> right, 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 right. It's completely right. made up science, yeah. but it feels grounded in like like it could be, but but no, it's just sprung from his demented mind. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's what's fun about it because I think you know it lends stuff like that ends a level of credibility to your narrative. 
Sure. So, yeah. yeah. I think it helps suck you in a little bit. Yeah. More. Yeah. All right. So after uh, the success of those first couple of low budget features, uh, you know, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but he had become a bankable director. He was making movies that made money. You know, they were low budget movies, but they made more money than they cost. And they ended up being a return on investment for the people who invested in which in the case of those first couple movies happened to be the Canadian taxpayers and the Canadian government. So uh, he, he had kind of started to get this reputation as being dependable and professional. And if you've seen interviews with him, like he's you would, you know, you would never think that this is the guy making these kind of disgusting movies, uh, because <laughs> like, like I, th- I think we might have mentioned it when we talked about him and Martin Scorsese meeting, but Martin Scorsese said that he expected him to look, you know, like a, like a crazy person, and he looked more like a gynecologist from Beverly Hills. So it's, this is kind of the reputation he's getting, though. He's a professional, he's very polite, he's very good at his job, and his movies make money. This is a guy that you can depend on. If you're going to finance one of his movies, uh, the movie's going to turn a profit. So that puts him in kind of a unique position after the release of Rabid, because in Canada, in the late 1970s, everyone suddenly wanted to invest in films, thanks to this newly installed tax shelter law. So the years between 1975 and 1982 are, are kind of known as the tax shelter era, uh, a time when filmmaking in Canada in Canada began booming because the federal government allowed investors to deduct 100% of their investment in Canadian feature films from their taxable income. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, wow. <laughs> anyone who had the money to invest in it are going to do it because that's a huge, huge ta- tax break. And so this this new law results in a massive increase in Canadian film production. So to give you an idea, in 1974, three movies were produced in Canada as as like Canadian films. Mm -hmm. By 1979, that had increased to 77 films. Holy shit. Just in the year (laughs) 1979. Now compare that to America around the time. America was doing about 90 to 100. Okay. Still, though, that's, I mean, the, the population of America is vastly bigger than than canada it's a lot of trees in canada (laughs) a lot of moose (laughs) are moose moose allowed to make uh, films they they don't have a lot to invest honestly (laughs) (laughs) so for a film to qualify for this it had to be at least 75 minutes long so feature length it had to have at least one producer and two-thirds of the above the line creative team who were canadian which means the director the writer like the the upper uh, members of the crew and at least 75% of the production and the post-production had to be conducted in Canada. And there were a lot of good movies that were made during this time. There were a few good movies that were made during this time. Uh, as a result of these new laws, you've, you've got Ivan Reitman's meatballs, which was a huge break for him. It nice. obviously eventually led to him doing stripes and then doing ghostbusters. So meatballs was a big deal. Uh, Paul Lynch's prom night. We all know prom night, the slasher movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Peter Medex, the changeling, which is another outstanding horror film and Bob Clark's porkies. Uh, Bob Clark was I don't think Bob Clark was Canadian, but he was working in Canada for most of his career. Uh, these films were all created under this tax shelter system. As you can imagine, there were also a lot of movies that were produced during this time that were just hot garbage. Uh, stuff that was filmed quickly and sloppily, basically just to make a little bit of money. And basically as just a nothing more than a tax shelter. I bet... There, there has to be like a movie about this time that's kind of like the producers, but part two. There so should be. <laughs> so instead of them dealing with like the Nazi guy, it's just like 
de- them dealing with Canadians and trying to get the. It's tax like money. Strange Brew, but the producers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It, yeah, good. Well, the, these were films that were they were the results of like doctors and lawyers and dentists who were less concerned with making art than they were with just a tax dodge. There so it is. So there was a lot of garbage movies, and a lot of them didn't even get distribution. Yeah, so to be like really clear, I mean, it was like they were basically these people were just like coming up with all this money and they just they just needed to get rid of it so they didn't have to pay taxes on it. So they dump it into a movie. They're just like, whatever, just just put it in something. Now you can't tax me on this thing. It's it's busy. The money's tied right. up. It's a period that didn't last very long. Uh, no, between, it was like it was like five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. I think by 79, investors and accountants and all those people had figured out how to game the system and they were just pumping out any kind of shit they could trash just trash and uh Uh, but but the one thing we can say for sure is that it definitely did give some opportunities to people like david cronenberg who's been learning on the job here and again and he's about to enter another weird period after rabid where he's like two years off from a movie or something but then this shit kicks in and now he gets to spit them out left and right if he wants to even yeah uh, which is exactly what he did (laughs) like he, he was making them pretty quickly so even if David the studio is not going to use them, really, or distribute yeah, cause, them. <laughs> right, because a lot of them bear, did, got little to no distribution, uh, especially outside of Canada. Uh, if they got any distribution, they were getting distributed there, but some of them barely even got that. And this was also true of David Cronenberg's next film, the film that followed up Rabid, which is a movie called Fast Company. Fast Company was released kind of, this is, we're towards the tail end of this tax shelter era. Uh, this is 1979. It was made specifically for the American B-movie market. Uh, it stars American B-movie actors. Uh, there is a, a, an abundance of red, white, and blue. Uh, I think it's actually technically set in America, although it was filmed in Canada, of course. Uh, but the film was hardly ever released. and was It, it never really made a profit, which the investors didn't care because, it, again, it was a tax break for them. They didn't care if it made any money or not. It didn't have to make any money for them to get a tax break and i watched fast company uh leading up to this because i had never seen fast company uh we're not gonna you know do an episode on it but i didn't want to watch it just because i I was curious you know how it felt like as far as how it fit into cronenberg's career and fast company it's fine like it would be probably a very forgettable film if it had been made by anyone else but since it's directed by david cronenberg it's kind of i kind of view it as a fascinating oddity a weird outlier in his filmography and it's a surprisingly commercial film like in the way that it feels obviously it didn't make any money but it feels like a commercial film uh, that's just sort of dropped smack dab in the middle of this weird body horror phase of his career would you equate it to the canadian version of american graffiti no no this is more no? about um professional drag racers ah, okay. uh, so it, it, it is about car culture but in a very different way there's none of that nostalgia shit that's in uh American graffiti. This is very much a drama about race car drivers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's notable though, as a part of the discussion on Cronenberg's career, because of the team that he had assembled behind the scenes on this one. Uh, it marks the first uh, of four collaborations with actor Nicholas Campbell, who we're going to see again in the brood. Uh, it also marked the first time he worked with a cinematographer named Mark Irwin, who would go on to shoot five more Cronenberg movies after this, including every other movie that we're going to talk about on this particular series on Cronenberg's career. Uh, it was also the first of Cronenberg's film to be edited by Ronald Sanders. Sanders would go on to edit 
every Cronenberg movie from here on, except for The Brood, uh, presumably because The Brood was made so quickly after this that he was signed on to another film because he did have another 1979 credit. Uh, it was also the first time that Cronenberg worked with an art director named Carol Spire, who's also stuck with the director for nearly every movie that he's made since 1979. Costumes were designed by Delphine White, who would also end up doing the costumes for Scanners and Videodrome. I think she gets replaced later on in his career by uh, his sister, I believe, Denise Cronenberg, starts designing costumes for him. So you've got all these people who, yeah, we're not going to talk about Fast Company, really, but it's important to kind of note because almost all of these people behind the scenes, all the, all these crew members are going to work on the brood from a career perspective. It was an important step in his career, you know? So while it may not have had a, you know, it may not have had a huge impact on the film industry as a whole. It did have an impact on his career because of this team that he'd built together. And it wouldn't take long until this group of people started working with him again, because his next film was released less than three months after Fast Company. Uh, and it's widely considered by most critics to be Cronenberg's first truly great film. And that, of course, is the subject of today's episode. We're talking about The Brood. They come from the unknown. And they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. Are you ready for me, Frank? I seem to be a very special person now. I'm in the middle of a strange adventure. I want to go with you wherever you go. You? Yes. Then look! The Brood. You can run. You can hide and hope they won't find you. But you won't escape. Once unleashed, the Brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's ultimate experience in inner terror. Starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The Brood, they're waiting for you. You know, I actually watched Fast Company as well. Did you? Yeah, I did. And it's it's weird as hell. And not like that it's bad. It's just... It doesn't feel like a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, it's just no, it's nothing pretty... like what you think of. Um, yeah, except for that scene where the guy pours motor oil on the girl's titties. That feels I... kind of Cronenbergian. Sure, yeah. But it's, it, it is, it's all like car chases, fist fights. Fast cars and fast women. That's yeah. what this movie is about. <laughs> See, it's a I fine w- movie. I watched Speed, and uh, that that's not the same movie. Mm-hmm. There's no, there is no. not. No Although I, I kind of was, I kind of was hoping someone would pour motor oil on uh, on Sandy Bullock, but on Sandy, yeah, but not like in a sexual Sandy. way. Just, just, just kind of like, just kind of like, all right, shut up. Yeah, this <laughs> stop would, yelling, uh, stop yelling, repeating every line in the of dialogue in this movie. No, no big dogs in this movie. I mean, it has like a nice little B movie cast, like William Smith and Claudia Jennings, John Saxon, all of that stuff. But no, like highly evolved parasitic creatures. No, there's nothing like that. No unless, horror at all, unless you count the the pit lizards. 
Yeah. Um, well, this uh, also, you know, we, we mentioned it a little bit during Gravid, but Cronenberg also has a lifelong fascination with cars and like race cars. And he's, he's a gearhead, you know? So it did kind of, even though he didn't write the script to Fast Company, it did kind of play into some of his other obsessions outside of like science and, you know, the mind and things like that, that he explores in all of his other horror films. You know, I was thinking about just now, like the pit lizard thing, you know, there's like lot lizards. I think mm-hmm. everybody's heard of those like for truckers. And then I, yeah. I, we started watching Yellowstone. There's, fantastic by the way yellowstone so good but uh for the rodeo they have uh buckle bunnies and so <laughs> that's uh find that interesting so i was uh thinking well, what do we call the women we deal with as podcasters there aren't uh, any no woman has ever been attracted to a podcaster whatever <laughs> i don't know what circles you travel in pal but people hear podcast and panties drop <laughs> call them listen lizards Nah, uh, nah. I, uh, I'll think of it by the time we're done. I was gonna Mike, say pod, Mike Meekses, pod pussies, pod pussy, pod parts. <laughs> See, I was thinking pod pussies, but I was just kind of like, oh, he's no. like, I'm not gonna say that. I said it for you, Todd. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sound sluts. Hey, there you go. That that'll work. We we have gotten off track, but okay. So seriously though, Fast Company is the it's the best looking movie though. That was the thing that stood out to me, like coming off Rabbit and Shivers. So all these people that are going to come with Cronenberg. I mean, speaking it of looks Yellowstone, the most, it looks the most professional. Yeah, like speaking of Yellowstone, it it looks like uh, Yellowstone has like a movie pilot. It feels like it could be like that. It could have been a series or something. Like it was. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a it's just kind of a straightforward story, but. Man, I I really did like the cinematography and everything and was thinking about that. And then this Cronenberg, like good for him. You know, he's got steady yeah. work. He gets to shoot two movies back to back and uh, and getting to do a movie about car racing. So you, you feel good for him. He's getting a paycheck too. Yeah. You know? So when Cronenberg was approached about writing another script that could be developed into a genre film, he didn't really have a story in mind. So he just starts writing. And when he started writing, he says the story just Uh, pushed its way right up the typewriter. This is a quote from Cronenberg, by the way. Of course it is. I really don't think I had any choice. It was like automatic writing. It's my most autobiographical script, and I was very compulsive about writing it. And the reason that the script kind of flowed out of Cronenberg the way that it did is because it was his way of processing a particularly nasty divorce and custody battle that he had gone through while shooting Fast Company. Cronenberg's always been pretty open about the origins of the script to the brood. Uh, he, he talks about it in almost every interview that mentions this movie. They get in onto this subject. Even uh, He even goes so far as to refer to the brood as his version of Kramer versus Kramer. Kramer versus Kramer being the Dustin Hoffman, Meryl Streep film uh, that's also about a couple going through a divorce. Cronenberg uh, says that his version was much more realistic emotionally. Where Where is that anger, that rage, that desire to kill? That's what he says about Kramer versus Kramer. I saw uh, like in a like a quote from, I think that book you had, the Cronenberg was, uh, on Cronenberg book. Yeah. Like he says something like the brood, uh, the brood got to the real nightmare, horrific, unbelievable inner life of the situation. Yeah. Um, I'm not being facetious when I say, I think it's more realistic, even more naturalistic than Kramer versus Kramer. I felt that bad. It was that horrible, that damaging. That's why it had to be made. Then it wanted to be made full blast. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like he could not help it. Like he said, he was compulsive about writing it. It was almost like he was had to purge all of these emotions 
uh, onto the page. And Kramer versus Kramer, I think it came out actually after The Brood, the same year, 1979, but Cronenberg knew of its development and he was familiar with the novel that served as the source material for the movie because uh, that had been released a couple of years earlier. So in response, you know, he, he knew that this was coming and he's like, this is a very unrealistic version of a divorce, at least from my perspective. So he starts working on a screenplay for The Brood, uh, depicting the strife between a divorced couple battling over their child, but in a much more Cronenbergian way. Of course, he had to get his his rogue scientist in there. and Of course, yeah, uh, you got to get yeah, that. <laughs> all of that stuff and weird kids in snowsuits that beat the shit out of people with anything they can pick up. and uh, Yeah, toys and mallets. And... It's kind of interesting, though, because a lot of these people, when you see them talking about it, like the people that worked on the film, like coming off Fast Company and then this, uh, kind of, they, they seem like they're, they're kind of evolving themselves and feel like they kind of hooked up with Cronenberg at the same time. So you can see that like camaraderie there. Like I saw yeah. an interview in Sci-Fi Now with uh, Mark Irwin, you know, he's the director of photography, and he said, quote, David seemed to be hitting a new stride because up until then it had been kind of gooey horror films. This was the first stand-up one, which was more dramatically <laughs> based and not so special effects based. I think he well, was coming of age like the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, because the special effects, like the, the body horror aspect of this movie doesn't really come to light until what the, la the very last couple scenes of the movie. Right. You know, uh, it, it's all a mystery of what's happening up until then. So when it came time to cast the film, Cronenberg says that he actually deliberately cast the main couple. He, he deliberately cast actors as the main couple who were vague physical facsimiles of himself and his wife. Although I don't think the guy who plays Frank really looks like Cronenberg, but, you know, he, he wanted him to kind of be the same kind of, uh, you know, random white Canadian dude, I guess. So casting the, that lead role of Frank was a Canadian actor named Art Hendel, uh, while an English actress named Samantha Egger was cast as the wife, as Nola. And then in the role of Hal Raglan, that's the, the doctor, the psychologist who's treating Nola, Cronenberg cast uh, a guy who I love, Oliver Reed, a uh, great British actor. Uh, and, and Edgar and Reed, they'd actually grew up together. They grew up like in the same British town and they had worked together before in 1970. They co-starred in a film called The Lady in the Car with Glasses and a Gun, uh, so which I, I've never heard of. But uh, th these these are two well-respected British actors. Well, she was well-respected. He he He's... We will go in on all of yeah. I know <laughs> we are. A, he's a bit of a wild card. We'll get we'll get into it in a minute. Yeah, he's uh, so, out. But so they, they watch, had so watchable though. Like, oh I, god, he's awesome. Yeah, I would take back my statement from last episode about Cronenberg and his leading men. If if he were the leading men, I mean, he kind of is, but he's, kind of is. But I'd say I'd say what you said about leading men for the previous two movies still applies to Frank. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but yeah, he, supposedly he and Edgar uh, Oliver Reed. And Edgar, or you know, when they would work together before, they had had a romance. I was reading a little bit oh, about really? that. Yeah, they, and it was kind of a they called it a jilted romance. And he would go to her hotel room at night and like knock on the door. And I think it was Irwin again uh, in one of his this quote. He said, "Uh, what was interesting about the tension between Edgar and Oliver Reed was that they had, as it turned out, a history. <laughs> They'd come to fruition and gone their separate ways." And now Ollie, in his nostalgia, among other things, decided he wanted to rekindle that every night. I don't think she felt the same this way. During the, yeah. during the filming of this movie? Right. <laughs> he, said, he said, so it was very evident on set that she wasn't interested. They would go on to say, like, it, maybe it worked out for the best that there was uncomfortableness between yeah, the two of them. Yeah, I mean, they, they couldn't have gone on for very long because as we'll, as we'll discuss, she was not 
on set for very long. So with, with the brood, Cronenberg was given his biggest budget yet, about a million and a half on this one, uh, which allowed him to cast name actors like Egger and Reed. Uh, but the tax shelter law stipulated that the film could only have two non-Canadian actors. And one of them had to be paid less than the main Canadian actor. The main Canadian actor in this case, I guess, being what's his name uh, that played Frank. Uh, ha- ha- oh, shit. I forgot his name already. Art Hendel. <laughs> Art oh, Hendel. I've watched so many interviews with this guy. You'd think I'd remember. Art no, Hendel. that just shows you exactly the point we were making earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably Egger was the one to have the smaller payday, not Oliver Reed. Uh, of the two non-Canadian actors, because her role only required her to be on set for about three or four days, which of course would have kept her fee a lot lower. Also the patriarchy. Oh yeah, that too. (laughs) Let's (laughs) let's not forget. (laughs) Um, In the interview on like the Criterion, she actually says like it was Monday through Thursday because she said she was like filming Fantasy Island at the time. And she would go from like on the show, she was marrying Ricardo Montalban. Con! And then she had to fly out immediately after shooting into 38 degree Canada and bust ass till Thursday next to Oliver Reed (laughs) for the next weekend. Yeah. She she seems like one of those people though, that like tries to have fun. Like she, you know, she talks about being on all these different movies that she got to do, but you know, with the opportunity popped up to do a musical, she's like, Oh, I want to do a musical. And then it's like, if it's a sci-fi movie, Oh, I'd like to do a sci-fi or a horror movie. Let's do that. Yeah. So uh, Oliver Reed, He's he, this is a guy who I, I hope we'll talk about him more on this show one day, more of his movies. That is uh, most modern audiences probably know him best as the old gruff gladiator trainer named Antonios Proximo uh, in Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Uh, that was actually his last film before he died. But uh, it's it's a very it's a great memorable role, and pro- but probably his most high profile for most most audiences here, at least here in America. Uh, but Reed, he'd gotten his start in genre films. His first significant role was in uh, Sword of Sherwood Forest in 1960, which was a Hammer Films production directed by Terrence Fisher. Terrence Fisher was like Hammer's go-to guy, you know, a legendary director. Uh, Fisher liked him a lot, so he also cast Reed in his first starring role, which was 1961's The Curse of the Werewolf, of course, another Hammer production. Uh, Hammer liked him. The, Hammer, the guy, the, the suits at Hammer liked Reed a lot. So he ended up appearing in a bunch of their movies throughout the early 60s. And then throughout the 60s and 70s, Reed made several films with Michael Winner and with cult filmmaker Ken Russell, including Russell's infamous 1971 film, The Devils. Uh, and and I, uh, I do want desperately to talk about Ken Russell on this show one day. I really want to do a Ken Russell series. He did Tommy, which also has uh, Oliver Reed in it. Uh, he's just a fascinating director. Unfortunately, The Devils is hard to find. It, it's streamed it's streamed on Criterion and on Shudder briefly over the last couple of years. Like for a few months, it was available, but there's no good physical edition of it like i don't know what's going on with that movie but it is very hard to find but it is a fascinating film you really uh, feel like it, we're in the age of like no film should be hard to find yeah there's something with, with the rights i think and there's a lot of controversy regarding the devil so it's very possible that it's actually been deliberately suppressed but uh it's it's if you ever get a chance to see the devils it's great and oliver reed is on like another level in that movie it's it's really outstanding well if they out there suppressing it i'm stubborn that makes me want to see it so. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh so i i'm not going to go through reed's like entire filmography here but suffice to say he was a pretty big star in england during this time period uh there was even talk that albert r 
Broccoli and Harry Saltzman were eyeing him as Sean Connery's replacement as James Bond when Sean, when, when Sean Connery was ready to leave the role. He'd have made a decent Bond. But that tells you how, especially when he was younger and he, was, he wasn't he was as hefty as he is in this movie. I, he may not have had, he's got a scar on his chin, uh, which you can see in this movie. That might have even been before that. I think he, he was in a bar fight. I think he got stabbed with a uh, with a bottle. <laughs> seems like the kind of guy who would stir that up <laughs> yeah, sure by this time kind of... <laughs> by, by the brood time he was already in the uh, physical state of shaken and stirred doesn't matter just injected into my veins poor yeah. man <laughs> oh there are some legendary stories about oliver reed uh but so when he was cast in the brood he was kind of past the height of his career but his inclusion in the film was still a major boon to the production he was still a known guy did you get the criterion of this movie oh yeah yeah i've got watch him him on the merv griffin show i didn't watch i didn't watch that jesus he's on there with uh orson wells yeah and it is just i can't believe it's like a podcast like i can't believe that shows really just aired on television like this but they're like supposedly friends but they have like a very antagonistic way about them like they just, i feel like both of those guys have that anyway you know what i mean yeah i mean they're like sitting there and they're just like uh you guys were just together in uh the alps right they're like oh yes uh mr wells and i we hang out on a regular basis orson it's good to see you i'm surprised you pulled yourself away from the buffet table <laughs> for long enough to be here uh, it looks like you've stored most of it in your ginormous gut, but it is good to see you nonetheless. And Orson Welles is just like, oh, Mr. Griffin, would you grab me a glass, please, to collect some of the sweat that is no doubt alcoholic seeping through Mr. Reed's veins right now. <laughs> Wasn't Charo on that same episode with them? I think, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's, a weird, that's what I'm saying. It's like it's just a weird... Like fucking peek I into. Got, <laughs> I might have to watch that later. I, I didn't have oh. time to watch it, but because I didn't think that they would probably discuss the brood that much during it. They don't. Uh, no, I watched it thinking they I would. Was, I was most fascinated by Charo's uh, inclusion on that episode. I, yeah, I want to see how she interacts with them. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> she ends up ranting some towards the end and they just kind of stare at her, but uh, it's mostly just like. For some weird reason, like Merv tried to make, I'm the happy guy between you two making jokes and these two that obviously feel like they're better than everyone else within like <laughs> a thousand feet. Like the <laughs> like equivalent just... of that today is like Anthony Hopkins, Morgan Freeman, and like Sofia Vergara. <laughs> yes. Even like Anthony Hopkins, I mean, Anthony Hopkins has got his thing about it. Morgan Freeman seems really likable all the time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know. These guys seem like they could not give less of a shit about you. <laughs> they, they probably don't. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So the most difficult part of the casting process uh, for, for this film was finding the brood itself because Cronenberg would only find two Canadian actors who were small enough. Uh, he ended up using 10 seven-year-old gymnasts from a school in Ontario who were apparently really disappointed to find out that the movie was rated R because they couldn't see it. Uh, and that, those, that, by the way, I'm talking about the at the end of the film, the brood, when there's like all of them attacking Oliver Reed, you know, crawling all yeah. over him. Those are the 10 gymnasts. Uh, for the scenes where there's only like one or two uh, the, the the creature, the brood, the rage creature, whatever you want to call it, was played by an actor named Felix Sela, uh, who he had appeared in everything from Spaceballs to 
Batman Returns. He was one of the, the Emperor Penguins, you know, Return of the Jedi. Uh, he also plays the stunt duck in Howard the Duck. That's literally his credit is stunt duck. Nice. And he's short round stunt double in Temple of Doom. Holy crap. <laughs> what a fun <laughs> career. Yeah. Uh, so, well, that, uh, but what I don't know is if he was in a Star Trek episode of any sort, Todd. <laughs> Maybe you could shine some light onto that. Yes, well, this week, uh, we've actually got some Star Trek royalty in this movie. That's surprising. Most of the time we get one, maybe two, and it's usually like somebody, you know, did stunts or just had a, you know, walking by on the bridge, you know, type of role. But uh, actually, um, you know, besides Mr. Cronenberg himself, Felix Sela, who plays the creature, he was in the Star Trek pilot in February 1965. He was in the he was in the cage as the Telosian. Now it was he was uncredited, right? But yeah, he was in the was very the first episode He's, of Star Trek to yeah, ever exist. Exactly, that's cool. The, the <laughs> pilot that was rejected by NBC. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, wow. he was he was in the cage. And then Miss Samantha Egger, who plays Nola Caravith, she was in Star Trek: The Next Generation, season four, episode two. That was in 1990. The episode titled family now if anybody's out there familiar with that particular episode it's actually considered to be the third part of the best of both worlds where Jean-Luc Picard gets assimilated by the board after the events of that whole two-parter which was huge in not just Star Trek history but like television production history the third part is this episode called family Wow. Where he, where he, the enterprise is being, uh, you know, repaired and space dock and everything, and he actually goes back to the family vineyard. He goes back to the Picard family vineyard, and there's his brother and his sister in law, Marie Picard, who is played by Samantha Egger. And oh, it's, shit. it's it's wow. honestly, if you watch Best of Both Worlds and Family as a trilogy, it's really great because you get to see uh, Patrick Stewart's an amazing actor. If yeah, there's any, if if there's any question about it, watch Family. It's, yeah. and it will seal the deal. Like it is a fantastic episode, and she's nice. wonderful in it. That's awesome. I had no idea. I uh, I mean, I, I know I've seen that episode, but it's been decades, literally, oh, yeah. probably since I saw it. And, and like cool. for for an extra little tidbit, like watch those three episodes right before uh, revisiting Generations because the storyline there from family kind of ties into that movie and really? it's, it's a lot of fun and it's a great, that's, that's it's cool. One of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Or just, or... That's it. That, I mean, if you're going to only have two, like those are two, those are, yeah, those are really solid. Like, those are pretty, pretty big <laughs> entries. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is fun. Yeah. So it comes time to start shooting the brew. They've got their cast. They've got everybody ready to go. Uh, The film goes before cameras in Toronto. Uh, This time, they're not shooting in Montreal this time. They're shooting in Toronto, mid-November 1978, continued through the end of the year. Uh, And as we mentioned earlier, cinematographer Mark Irwin, our director, Carol Spire, they returned to work with Cronenberg again after doing Fast Company with him. The editor on this one was a guy named Alan Collins, who has almost exclusively worked on Canadian films and definitely had some like exploitation movie cred, having worked on Night Call Nurses and Private Duty Nurses for producer Roger Corman. Uh, the latter of which, of course, starred Shivers lead Paul Hampton. We mentioned that on that episode. And one of the most notable contributors, though, to The Brood, in my opinion, is composer Howard Shore. Howard Shore is a legend. 
I think in my, I mean, I think he's a legend. He's the guy who provided the incredible scores for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, uh, which are some of my favorite movie scores of all time. If he had never done anything else other than those, uh, he would be a legend in my book. Uh, but everything he does for Cronenberg is also just really incredible. And the, the Brute's fairly early in his career. Uh, he was kind of just getting started as a film composer. So a little bit about Howard Shore. Uh, he was born in Toronto, 1946. He began studying music when he was about eight or nine years old, uh, kind of a child prodigy. He worked all the way through, you know, middle school, high school, playing in school bands and things like that. Uh, his first big break in his career, though, came in 1970 when he became the music director for a Canadian sketch comedy show called The Heart and Lorne Terrific Hour. Uh, that show was short-lived, but it began Shore's partnership with a fellow Canadian by the name of Lauren Michaels. Uh, and then Shore would, of course, go on to be the musical director for the first five years of Saturday Night Live Whoa. from 1975 to 1980. That, you know, that's that really, you know, I mean, I, I will not pretend to be the SNL savant that Justin's wife is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want, you know, take a couple of episodes, find some of your favorite, you know, celebrities and watch, watch those episodes. First of all, they're, a lot of fun to watch because it's kind of it, it's kind of like a mad scramble to to those first to five years happen. are my favorite it's and my the, favorite era and the music is really is really interesting really too. Good. i feel i feel like even though they've done some really big things of course here in the last you know 40 plus years it was kind of more open if that makes more sense they weren't like in a box i feel it also like, felt a little bit more underground because yeah, it was yeah time, yeah you know? yeah you're absolutely right so it was during that time that he was doing Saturday Night Live, during that five years that he started writing his first film scores. His first one was a low-budget thriller called I Miss You, Hugs and Kisses, released in 1978. And then The Brood was a second film score. It was only a second movie. And it was the first of many, many collaborations with David Cronenberg. He has since, from The Brood on, he has scored every single film that Cronenberg has directed, with the exception of The Dead Zone. Wow. Every single one. All the way up till... The one he, his last one, which I think was Map to the Stars. And I think he's doing the Crimes of the Future one that's supposed to come out later this year. Yeah. And the Dead Zone was just because of his blood feud with Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> it sounded incredible, though. Yeah. If you hadn't guessed. <laughs> so the film shoot itself took an, on an almost like guerrilla style uh, because, according to, Mark Irwin, it was because the, this atmosphere was kind of created by the need to finish shooting the film before the end of the year, because in order for the film's investors to count it on the there, as a tax credit for that year, the movie had to be completed by the end of the year, or at least done shooting by then. Yeah, they'd so have they, to, yeah, like Pierre David, the executive producer, I mean, he was the one who kind of got it made. It was like kind of uneventful. He just had it on his table, he said, but he was. Yeah, because the guys point. at Cinepix like turned it down for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, you know, you're not really worrying about funding at this time because investors were essentially just trying to hide their money in the film system. So yeah. you always got options, but he was, you know, had somebody that was looking to sink some money into stuff. He sees the brood and is like, man, this is good if not better than literally anything else i have so let's, yeah. let's make this and yeah uh, so they you know so they start shooting it in november and they've got until the end of december to finish it up exactly yeah so he says you got to hustle he says cronenberg was as organized as he'd ever seen through anything so i, I think he goes on to, they're going to work together for like three movies if i'm not yeah, mistaken yeah yeah that sounds about right and Irwin also says that the shoot taught him a lot about shooting night for day 
which is very unusual. We see a lot of day for night shoots in movies, especially lower budget ones. It always looks kind of crappy. Uh, like it kind of looks like they lightened the scene, I think. Uh, but night for day is a, it's pretty rare, at least I think, at least I'm not aware of it maybe, uh, but maybe it's just easier to do. I'm not sure. But the way that he would do this is he would shoot scenes that were clearly in the daytime, you know, a scene in front of a lake where you can see this full sky where you obviously can't hide that it's during the day. But even if they're, they have to shoot a, you know, a different angle for the same scene, but the sky wasn't visible. Like let's say you've got your characters up against the wall. They would choose to shoot that later because the days in Canada are very short. Uh, This is winter. This is December in Canada. Very, very uh, short time frame of daylight hours. So if they didn't have to shoot it during the day, they would push it off till it was dark and then he would shoot night for day huh. yeah which sounds like a real hassle and they're like you know like you said gorilla stone is going all over but Irwin says like he he gets like a lot of people in shoots when he uses that trick like later on or how to organize those things people are just like how do you learn, learn that and he's like he's, you don't want to know it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> not fun it's not fun but mark Irwin, by the way other than doing like cronenberg films if go look at his filmography man it, it is First of all, it's kind of all over the place, but he does a lot of uh, he does a lot of horror movies, but he also does like Passenger 57. You know, he did RoboCop 2. He he did um, Scream with Wes Craven. He did New Nightmare with Wes Craven. He did uh, wow. several movies with the Ferrelli brothers, like There's Something About Mary, you know, Me, Myself and Irene. He's doing he's like if you look at his filmography. You've heard of every movie that he's shot. There's there's oh, wow. they're, they're all I mean, some of them are not great movies. Uh, like say um, steel, <laughs> but but you've heard of them all. You it know? is it is someone's favorite movie. <laughs> it's Shaquille O'Neal's favorite movie, <laughs> and nobody else's. Um, <laughs> you're you're gonna we, tell we me on, that he likes steel of, more than uh, Kazam. <laughs> we were on sure the side of true. steel, and uh, he wanted to shoot. Uh, is that your Shaquille O'Neal uh, impression? I I, sh- I understood went, it. It was it made sense. He wanted to shoot night for day, and I was like, "Well, love that he has a Shaquille O'Neal tucked away, Just ready, ready to go, available for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. His, your his at, theme song should be always ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a reference to a conversation we had before we started recording this. So it's gonna play great on the show. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, right. uh, other than having to kind of scramble to shoot these scenes, the the shoot itself was fairly uneventful. Uh, but there was a little bit of drama caused by none other than Oliver Reed. Uh, so Reed, if you don't know a lot about him, he has a reputation as a raging alcoholic. Uh, it's a it is a narrative that often overshadows his skills as an as an artist, as an actor. Like in almost every interview, like his his drinking comes up because this guy like binge drinks. There there are stories of him having parties where they drink. 40 bottles of wine like it's crazy and his antics did cause some headaches for the crew of the brood especially uh what's his name pierre david uh they they asked him about that he said uh, quote i had no idea what i was getting into when i hired (laughs) oliver reed yeah the most memorable uh occasion happened when when pierre received a call that oliver reed was at the police station he'd been arrested Uh, He had apparently been out drinking at a restaurant and he made a bet that he would walk to the hotel from the restaurant completely naked. So somebody bet him he wouldn't do it. He bet that he would. And he did, Uh, which of course, you know, he's walking down the streets of Toronto, buck ass naked uh, and (laughs) let's face it, hammered drunk. uh, And the cops picked him up. Pierre David talks about 
picking him up at the police station and he just had the police like all laughing at his jokes and stuff he had, he had entertained them but you know it was it was kind of a, it was kind of a hassle for him to have to go uh, bail him out uh, excuse me sir uh you know rcmp here uh we uh we noticed your loonies and toonies hanging out and uh <laughs> you know we, we you know we'd like you to come down to the station if it's not too much trouble that'd be uh, that'd be great so you mean to tell me that you're a police officer my piss is harder than you well, you're, <laughs> you're certainly entitled to your opinion sir i, w- I wouldn't dissuade you from that but uh you know we're gonna need you to come down to the station please <laughs> no, no. So, <laughs> and scene there was another time when he almost got kicked out of the hotel he was staying at while shooting the movie because he just started like throwing shit out of the window and the he was only <laughs> the fourth floor yeah, and the, the hotel calls the producer. They're like, we can't, he can't do that. He can't just like throw shit out of his window. He can't stay here if he's going to keep doing that. Uh, Mark Irwin said he was, uh, he said, Ollie was not the kind of guy who would listen necessarily, but he actually did respect David Cronenberg very much because David Cronenberg had written the screenplay. And so well, he, like, he also like, he is known by everyone who works with him when, when it came time to work. He was on. He was very professional. You know, he was always on time, even when he'd been out drinking till the wee hours of the morning. He never showed up hungover, or at least you couldn't tell that he was hungover. He knew all of his lines. Uh, like he, the actors and the crew all say that, you know, when he, when it was time to film, he was a consummate professional. Wow. Yeah. They said um, there were t- two people with, well, at first it was his bodyguard. Uh, who was also a stand-in, and he would help him with his lines really closely. They said they would work back and forth. Uh, Irwin said whenever David would have script changes, Ollie would get really, he said, R-A-D-A on everyone. I don't know what that means. Um, (laughs) Yeah, all right, good. Uh, He said Ollie would get very R-A-D-A on everyone. It turned out Ollie was dyslexic, so his smokescreen and that kind of bluff that he would call when there were script changes on the spot was to start screaming at everyone that they're an amateur. So that was nice. But yeah. And then when he was throwing the stuff out of the fourth floor, they uh, apparently uh, Pierre David called his agent uh, and they were like, the hotel wants to kick him out. They said they can't keep a guest that does this. And uh, Reed's agent said, then, you have to call his brother. That's the solution for him. And he's the gatekeeper. He'll take care of stuff. And he said they did. And they, they brought in Oliver Reed's brother, Simon. And for some reason, he said Reed would show up on set every morning and be totally great. He'd get drunk at night. But there was, was there a hangover? I don't know. He was amazing. He was funny. He was on target. He was nice. He was everything. At night, he was crazy. But after his brother showed up, we didn't get any more <laughs> craziness on set. There's so many stories for him. Like if you look it up, I mean, I just saw like one with Patrick Warburton when I was just Googling Oliver Eden. And it was a quote from Patrick Warburton saying he has a tattoo on his penis. I know this because he showed me the first day I met him. (laughs) (laughs) But they talked about like Art Hendel said, uh, I remember introducing him to my mother-in-law at the time of the rap party. He was smoking a cigarette and he he deemed that impolite, but he didn't have anywhere to put it. So he just put it out on his tongue and he ate it. <laughs> Cindy Hines, uh, the her mother, she was one of the child actresses, uh, said uh, the, the mother had been given a gift by the crew members. Uh, uh, she said, my, the crew had gotten my mom a nice bottle of cognac. And after the party, she went to get it, but it was missing. 
she asked where it was and they said oh yeah oliver got it it's in his room and it was gone jeez (laughs) (laughs) so one of the other notable members of the crew that i think we have to mention is the guy that was responsible for the film's prosthetics uh and this was none other than yet another legend jack young uh we actually talked about him before this is the guy who did the makeup effects for toby hooper salem's lot uh so he had done you know the the barlow uh, mask on salem's lot uh which that was actually the film that he did right after the brood uh but he had gotten his start back in 1939 doing uncredited makeup work on the wizard of oz that was his very first job as a makeup artist and he had worked on movies like walking tall and apocalypse now and he didn't work for long after the brood i think he made two or three more movies after this before retiring but yeah another kind of legend that was working on this little fairly low budget canadian horror film i'm gonna say that's not a bad resume no apocalypse now no that's you're doing pretty good yeah (laughs) (laughs) there was a lot of cool like effect stuff on this movie just in general like i I know i saw eggers talk a lot about the uh you know the the big final scene for her like just the um but it was like condoms they cut the tips off the condoms and filled it Mm -hmm. with she said i don't want to know what but then they would like (laughs) stick them to me in places and they were just having a good time with it like yeah it's probably corn syrup and yeah yeah, and, and well, yeah, and at least on the blood and stuff, it was the the stuff that was weird to me. And I remember even saying this to to my wife during the filming or during watching the film um, was that the the kids that were involved. I was always like kind of freaked out by like these little kids being around, like in the in the classroom scene where the teacher, where the gets, teacher murdered. gets killed. Yeah, and I'm like, how? Like that is fucked up, but traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, but Irwin says uh, that it was purposefully uh jovial circumstances he said david had a his his quote said david had a light touch when it came to that scene not that it was a frivolous scene but he was aware of candace's age who was the same age as his own daughter and so he was very light and playful with the kids uh david in the first ad really went out of their way to ensure it wasn't portrayed as something lethal at all when it's all cut together of course it is but the kids did not experience any trauma yeah, I mean, that's the case a lot on these these horror movie sets where, you know, what, what we see as the final product is vastly different th- from the experience on the set. A lot of times they're just having a lot of fun. People are joking around. It's all about how it's presented. You add the music, you add the sound effects, you edit it in a way. Uh, but on the day, it's, you know, not it's not like you're actually seeing someone get murdered. Yeah, hopefully. except for uh, being around Oliver Reed. Erwin <laughs> 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 says it was uncomfortable for the kids. Uh the young gymnastic team of girls age five to eight they'd never been on a film set before and ollie was really loud and they were very frightened of him uh what made it worse was the mask they had on would not come off easily so they had to eat lunch with the mask on so they were all just bent out of shape Uh, (laughs) but in the scene where dr ragland goes in the bunkhouse uh to retrieve frank's daughter candace uh he says uh they, they you know get agitated they start jumping on him and stuff like that uh, which apparently he enjoyed, but whatever. Anyways, the uh, the they said uh, the kids wanted nothing to do with Oliver Reed. He smelled like a distillery. He was yelling. <laughs> These kids were not going to jump on him, much less attack or go near him. Uh, but the production team ended up having to address it by like they darkened the set a lot and they put uh, shadows and panels carefully throughout the room uh, that concealed their parents hiding behind them. They were just throwing them at. Oliver yeah, Reed. and so that the parents would like <laughs> take the kids and throw them onto Oliver Reed. <laughs> and Oliver Reed would like treat them like 
puppets like they were yeah. attacking him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he said the parents were very helpful. Uh, but he says, when you look at the scene now, it's, it's very choppily edited because it was hard to get things to flow very well. I think it worked pretty well in the end. Uh, so yeah, Art, Art Hindle also had a story about uh, just a, just another onset thing. He was saying that uh, he, uh, in the autopsy scene, he said, we actually shot in an actual autopsy room in a real hospital where we look at the dead fetus of one of these things. We had finished what we intended to do. And David said to me, why don't we go grab a shot where you're coming through the door? Just go out that door. We'll frame it. And you come back in. So I went out there. I closed the door and I'm waiting and waiting for action. And suddenly I felt kind of funny. I turned around and realized I'm in a storage room for corpses. So there I was <laughs> waiting for action. And for some reason, there was a delay. They were tweaking lights or something. And it seemed like I was in there for hours. Um, I yeah. love the guy who plays the... Uh the coroner or whoever it is that's, that's doing the autopsy. I just love oh, yeah. his line delivery. I know <laughs> he was, I, I, I was hoping he would get more because he was very good. Yeah, he's great. But uh, Art Hindle said uh, they, they ended up that like the famous line from Cronenberg on this movie was blood, blood, more blood. He like, he kept yelling <laughs> that. And so by the end of it, he actually had like, he had a crew made t-shirts uh, or as a rap gift that say more blood. And, nice. uh, they had, nice. It's like blood dripping on it. But they said that, that it would be like uh, the blood would like he would always yell that and it would like splash everywhere. Uh, and it was made from corn syrup like we were talking about. And uh, like the the little girl, um, she would they said they would break for lunch. And then by that time, like the blood on her had like crystallized. So like she oh. couldn't even move. So they would oh. have to like peel her like she's they said she was like a candy apple. And uh, they <laughs> she couldn't move. So they had they spent like an hour like trying to dissolve it with like warm water to get her out <laughs> so she could eat lunch and stuff. Oh Lord. So Roger Corman's New World Pictures, uh, they were actually responsible for distributing the film in the US. Uh, but when it came time to get a rating in the US, the MPAA demanded that some scenes be trimmed, uh, most notably the scene at the end of the film where Egger licks the fetus that she's just birthed uh the scene was actually egger's idea she conceived that on set the day that they were filming uh, she was kind of mimicking the behaviors of cats and dogs she had a lot of animals at the time uh you know who they when they give birth they lick their kittens or puppies and they, so that was kind of her thought process but when the scene was censored uh, they cut the actual shot of her licking it out uh cronenberg said quote i had a long and loving close-up of samantha licking the fetus when the censors, those animals, cut it out, the result was that a lot of people thought she was eating her own baby. That's much worse than what I was suggesting. And he's right, I think. I mean, <laughs> that's a lot worse than what she was doing. Uh, but that's just, you know, this. I feel like no matter what Cronenberg does, somebody's going to have a problem with something in one of these movies, uh, at least until he becomes more of a brand name. But the film was released in North America on June 1st, 1979. It was a pretty modest success, bringing in about $865,000 over a period of about uh, the first 10 days or so. By 1981, because this was, again, this is back when movies would kind of roll out releases. Uh, by 1981, the film had grossed over $5 million. So it's doing pretty well. You know, nothing too crazy, but, but pretty well. Uh, critical reviews were split, though, uh, leaning kind of on the negative side, actually. Uh, contemporary reviews, that, you know, at the time that it was released. Uh, Leonard Malton gave it one of his famous bomb ratings. Whoa. Uh, yeah, he got a bomb from Malton. Uh, here's it was a two-sentence review from Leonard Malton, and here's what it is. 
Edgar eats her own afterbirth, while midget clones beat grandparents and lovely young school teachers to death with mallets. It's a big, wide, wonderful world we live in. <laughs> Ticket sold. <laughs> yeah, honestly, for real. Yeah, yeah, that that honestly would make me want to see the movie. That sounds great. <laughs> it's so dis. I don't want to say disingenuous, but it's like that's like a small part of this movie. Yeah, it is. That's not what the movie's necessarily about. Uh, Roger Ebert called it a bore and said it was, uh, this is a quote from his review, disgusting in ways that are not entertaining, as opposed, for example, to the great disgusting moments in Alien or Dawn of the Dead. Uh, And then he goes on to ask in his review, are there really people who want to see reprehensible trash like this? Uh, He also referred to it as an El Slizo exploitation movie, which I personally think makes it sound super rad and like something I would want to see. (laughs) But Roger Ebert didn't see it that way. I think Roger Ebert might have needed to take himself a little nap. Oh, yeah. Him along with lots of critics on the Internet. And uh, so David Cronenberg uh, back then and now he's He's bound to piss some people off. <laughs> but but people on the internet are rarely wrong. Or they're angry. They're, they're usually <laughs> typing reviews at 3 a.m. and they should be taking a nap is what's happening. This review says, a really sad attempt to make a movie. 90% just plain boring. Disjointed attempts to build drama and suspense failed miserably. Why does Hollywood put out this kind of trash? A really sick shrink makes all his patients even sicker. There's no continuity throughout the movie on which to build a plot. The last eight minutes reveals that the wife, apparently abused by her mother and not protected by her father, can produce human mutants by some kind of weird hermaphroditic process. No connectivity. At the end, the weirded out daughter has a look in the last scene that opens the sequel door. Our only hope is that this movie is so bad that no one will attempt to make a sequel. They they didn't. didn't. (laughs) Uh, This review says, just plain boring. Totally overhyped. Contains spoilers. That's the title of it. I don't know if they're saying the movie contains spoilers or their review does. <laughs> um, performances and direction as well as screenplay are just simply mundane. There's barely a shred of the sleek, polished talent we have come to recognize as David Cronenberg. And what we have instead is some sort of mishmash of some of the better aspects from classic American horror movies as seen through the obviously tired eyes of this writer-director. It's almost got the sense of isolation of The Shining, but there are too many incidental characters. It's almost got the same sense of murder by the numbers as Halloween, but lacks the decisive action of that movie. It's close to the stark imagery and sense of motherhood going awry as Carrie, and even the lead actress bears a striking resemblance to Piper Laurie, but Samantha Egger's performance is overblown. Makeup effects, too, are overambitious for the time and fail to create any sense of impact or drama, and they just look silly. Of course, you could say the same for The Exorcist nowadays, but where that film still has the incredible strength of Ellen Bernstein's and Linda Blair's performances, all of the brood has to go on as some sort of deformed alien figures that hiss a lot. It's not good. In short, where a movie matters most, the brood fails wholly to deliver, instead regaling us with 90 or so minutes of unfulfilling cinema. A note on the subtext, it's difficult to feel any sort of respect for the social commentary contained herein. Sure, topics like the state of the nuclear family and the negative effects of a mother's love are riveting things when handled properly. Unfortunately, with the package and presentation are so obviously hollow and overdone, who could care less about subtext? I couldn't. 
That was actually I only read a, that a one because it was extra long and it was it was remarkably well written. Um, <laughs> but everything they said was wrong. That's what I thought too. <laughs> uh, let's see. This is uh, shorter, angrier ones. Grace says, "Why would you make this when you could just save people a lot of time and money by simply saying you hate your ex-wife?" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a fair point <laughs> uh, get the see. point aqu- across quite the same way uh, Sarah says small spoiler one star because of the brood babies they whipped a very heavy ball at this guy's head and I thought that was impressive but the main guy had absolutely no personality at all and I didn't like that which ruined the rest of the movie for me um Desi says, despite having Oliver Reed playing a brooding asshole to form murderous clone children that look straight out of Don't Look Now, a weird child actor who wears a prairie dress and unbelievable 70s decor and fashion, this movie is somehow really, really boring. On the plus side, it's only 90 minutes and the ending becomes extra demented when you know that this film was inspired by Cronenberg's divorce. My condolences to former Mrs. Cronenberg. And Matt Grillo says the brood is style over substance, ideas over story, and in the end, a lot of nothing. It's the first film I've watched this year where I felt I had wasted my time, where I actually gained nothing by watching it. It isn't even scary, which is the bare minimum a horror film should aspire to. Instead, the film's chief vehicle of terror is this gross out, which is the lowest level of horror. The character development is nil. We only learn what we're told. No one is dynamic. Everyone is sort of dumb in the kind of way an underwritten screenplay renders them. The atmosphere is cold, distant, but only in a way that makes the whole thing alienating. We can't really empathize with anyone. The plot isn't propulsive. Muddling along only to conceal an idea which is neither very interesting or that plausible, if not vaguely misogynistic. There are some good attributes, but they're buried in the whole wretched mess of it. Oliver Reed's good. As an ambiguously bad psychiatrist, the opening scene, a public therapy session, was to me the high point of the film. And that is it. That was- I actually, I love that opening scene that they talk about because if, you, if you've never seen this, uh, you're, you don't really know what's going on. Like, is it, is this some sort of like play? Like, what, right. you know, it's, it's really hard to tell what's going on until you 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 kind of realize it you know as the scene progresses but it really plays out almost like a two person play cuz they're on a stage they've got an audience you know uh and they're they're speaking as if it's they're playing parts cuz Oliver Reed's character is playing a part of this guy's you know abusive parent uh so it, it's a really great opening uh to the movie i think that makes you just like immediately you're kind of you're, you're a little drawn confused. in yeah, you're drawn it definitely in, draws you, you in. don't yeah, you're drawn in because you're curious as to what's going on, but you know, uh, it's it's very intriguing. It's a really great way to start a movie, I think. Oh well, I just want to say I I disagree with all those people. I like this movie a lot, like yeah. a lot, a lot, like a lot. I I like it a lot. <laughs> I I thought this very movie... very topical uh, yeah. impression there. <laughs> I, uh, I I I was impressed by how much I like this movie. I thought it's it a great movie. looked cool and it, the atmosphere was great. And I get it, it's kind of slow, but I think it it's pays only off slow everything. in that it's only slow in that there's not a lot of like horror action. There's a lot of atmosphere, uh, but it's not slow in that it's boring in any way. Now, if you're if you're watching this and you're waiting for something to, you know, a bunch of like 
scary, you know, monster scenes or whatever, you, you're not going to get that. That's not the type of horror movie that Cronenberg makes. Uh, none of his movies are going to do that, but it's never boring. I, I, when people say something is slow, like some of these reviewers did, it makes me think that they were bored by it. A movie can be slow in moving the plot. Although this one isn't, I mean, it's a mystery, you know, the whole time. Uh, I don't find it slow at all. I, th- I find it intriguing. It's just not scene after scene of like carnage, which is, well, is like what some Shining, horror fans they, want. Somebody referenced The Shining in one of those reviews, and that movie's kind of slow, but yeah, like it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, I don't know. They they seem to not think, I guess, that it, I think that their thing was like, it's not atmospheric enough, like The Shining or something. I'm not going to try to like compare the two, but I thought this movie kept me interested the entire time and yeah. i am tough to keep interested sometimes i was <laughs> and i was i was into it man i really really enjoyed it and i enjoyed everything this is your first time seeing it yeah i think so yeah i thought yeah, i'd man. seen it like it sounded really familiar but watching it i was like no i don't think i've ever seen this these weird because i didn't know what was happening um yeah. with the psychoplasmics <laughs> and whatnot it's a it's another intriguing bit of made up science from uh from Cronenberg I think uh and it's also this one is you know it's it, this is body horror yeah we're talking about body horror but this is this one also concerns the mind a little bit more which is another fascination of Cronenberg's uh especially in the way that the mind and the body are not two separate entities I think that's something we're going to see a lot on scanners next week where the mind and the body are intrinsically linked it's not like you, you they're not People often think of them as two separate things, but in Cronenberg's world, they are not. Yeah, and it, and it goes back to to like the um, uh, we kind of talked about it last time. Like the the Oliver Reed's character is not he's not evil. No, he's not at all. necessarily. He's just another. He's he's um, messed up scientist. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 no, so Todd, this was your first time seeing this as well, is that right? Yeah, yeah. This was a first viewing for me, and I, you know besides being drawn in by that first scene it was kind of it was a little slow just because i was like okay I'm, you know we've got this family drama type thing and there was a little bit of blood when you know the grandmother got you know bashed away and and i was just kind of like okay well, like where are we going with this but like it's it's and i'm i'm finding as i maybe it's because i'm getting older i don't know i like a slow burn mm-hmm um because <clears throat> i feel like some sometimes those payoffs are just even better more um, worth it yeah yeah and i think if you go if uh, listeners will go back to uh when justin and i did uh, my horror movies you'll find i really dig like the idea of like stuff in your mind is probably where most horror lies you know mm-hmm. it's it's you know it's not the monster it's not the ghost but it's kind of like what's happening in your own head or the person sitting next to you who you've known for years who snaps or whatever silence of the lambs you know stuff like that like there's psychological yeah psychological horror i think is again i i mentioned to the boys earlier about that you know that little bit of credibility because of that some of the some of that science when you get into the psychological damage of some of these people i work at a law firm where we we, we, you know, part of our thing is criminal defense. Well, we end up looking at evidence and stuff, uh, showing the fragile nature of the human experience and how, you know, these things are so damaging and have long, not only long lasting effects on the person, 
but seemingly endless ripples in the water of yeah. their actions just rippling out and affecting so many things. So well, and I, you see that here because like right not only is yeah nola possibly uh i mean i i don't think she's consciously uh abusing her daughter but she Mm -hmm. comes from a damaged family her parents the their destroyed marriage and the way that they treated her you're seeing the result of that it's not just what she's doing but it's what happened to her you know, right. so that that's kind of those ripple effects that you're yeah. talking about. Now, I will say I it sounds like I I mean, I enjoyed this movie, but I don't think this is this might not even be like a once a year viewing for me. I I, I don't think I like it as much as Gary does, but I, I enjoyed it. And again, I've, I've had a blast with the Cronenberg stuff. Again, I'm, I'm looking at these early things as like the prequel to the rest of his career. And yeah, it, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It feels like it, stuff really came together in this one. Like yeah, yeah all yeah. the way together. Uh, yeah, except, maybe that's I mean, because it was coming from a more personal place. Maybe I mean, I mean, except for poor Art Handel. Uh, yeah, well, you know, yeah. you know <laughs> like it's still at this point his like hero guys are buffoons. Yeah, so I don't even necessarily I, blame it on Art Handel. I think he's just he just what's he supposed to do? He's just yeah, he he's, runs he's around just, looking clueless the whole time. He was just written that way, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's funny to me that someone like Roger Ebert called this reprehensible trash, because to me, this, this kind of ties into, uh, you know, the way that we're discussing this, this is a movie made by, by a very thoughtful filmmaker. Uh, one who's trying to Absolutely. do more than just repulse people. Like he's actually, yeah, he make he's making horror, but he's doing it because he's got something to say. Whether or not you agree with what he has to say, or you're using this as his avenue to to do so, is is a different story. But to me, this is more emotionally realistic than most horror films, uh, especially those that would be considered exploitation or El Slizo exploitation, as as Roger Ebert put it. This is a from an emotional standpoint this feels it doesn't feel heightened it feels real i mean even though it's obviously a very heightened situation the brood also feels like it's the third part and there's a writer named carrie ricky she, she wrote the essay that accompanies uh, criterion's release of the film and she calls this uh cronenberg's bioterror trilogy shivers rabbit and this you know uh each of these films features a, a male mad scientist who tests his new therapy on a female, which results in unintended and horrific consequences. All three of these movies start off that way. So we've only slightly touched on it during the last couple of episodes on on Shivers and Rabid. Uh, We we did mention it, but we haven't dug into it. But one of the critiques that Cronenberg often receives is that he makes misogynistic films and that he himself is a misogynist. Uh, And The Brood made for a pretty easy target for critics who thought this way. Uh, one of the critics who was the most outspoken about this was a guy named Robin Wood. Uh, I've got a great book. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times of, of David Cronenberg interviews and Robin Wood. I looked it up in the index and Robin Wood has brought up no less than seven times in different interviews, either by the interviewer or often by Cronenberg himself. Uh, and it, it's like, Wood is his nemesis? This is his Lex Luthor. This is his <laughs> this is the joke. Robin Wood is the Joker to David Cronenberg's Batman. They're like, you know, they're always butting heads. But nice. Wood, in his reviews, he said that Cronenberg portrayed his dread of women by creating monstrous female characters. But I don't agree with that because I think that's victim blaming. 
because the women in these films are the guinea pigs that the male mad scientists use in their experiments. They don't ask for, none of them ask for this to happen. Uh, the, the men experiment on them pretty much against their will. I mean, what Oliver Reed's doing is, I mean, yes, she's there for therapy, but these constant, the, the, the result is not what she went there for, you know, but it, it's the men's actions that turn the women into monsters. The women themselves aren't evil at all. Uh, it's the male scientists who have inadvertently transformed them into monsters. Uh, you know, Nola, even in this, I don't think Nola is even fully aware that her brood is out killing people. I don't think that she ever really knows it until maybe the end of the film. Yeah, it never, uh, yeah, it kind of implies that she doesn't know. Um, yeah. That's so weird, yeah. So so the idea that Cronenberg that is, is a misogynist doesn't play to me because the women, even though they are transformed into monsters, they are also some of the more... Uh, sympathetic characters in the films. Uh, I, I think Marilyn Chambers' character is probably the most sympathetic in Rabid, but I guess the exception could be Juliana, Nola's mother in this. She's kind of portrayed as a monster. She's a alcoholic. She abused her kid. You know, uh, this is a story about you know Cronenberg's divorce. It's a story about divorce and about failed relationships, but it's also about generational trauma. Uh, this is a story not about one failed marriage, but about two, Nola and Frank and Nola's mother and father, you know, uh, and it's also about how the ramifications of her parents' failed relationships scarred her uh, both physically and emotionally and about how, and, and kind of about how the deterioration of Frank and Nola's marriage is doing the same thing to their kid, to Candy, you know, because at the end we see she's she's got that rage in her as well. You know, we see those boils popping up on her at the end of the movie. Uh, this is about generational trauma uh, that the cycle has not been broken yet. That was well said, Justin. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Gary. Almost like you had three weeks to think about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I purposefully skipped over most of the reviews, like in the nap stuff that, that, that talked about the misogyny part of it. Just, uh, you know selfishly yeah but it, yeah but i mean it, it was it does come up a lot and it and it came up a lot at the time of its release i mean when robin wood curated a a uh, like a festival i think it might have been the toronto international film festival he was doing this uh genre uh, program there and he wrote an essay to accompany the uh like a program with essays where he wrote and he wrote negatively about the brood even though he was showing it at the festival. And then he invited Cronenberg to come and Cronenberg knew their attitudes and he showed up anyway, because he, he does not, this, he does not back down. Nice. <laughs> he really nice. doesn't. He is, he is staunch in his, uh, his opinions about his own films. I wonder if, I wonder if the uh, shifting gears, I wonder if uh, Roger Ebert saw this as kind of the Kramer versus Kramer. Cause I'm curious as to his review of Kramer versus Kramer. And, yeah, you know, ju juxtaposed with this. Yeah, yeah, that I don't know. But uh, I mean, vastly different films, obviously. Mm. Art's so weird because you got to be careful to like how you how you present these ideas and that sort of thing. But I mean, also, you're you can't constantly uh, expect somebody to what's the way I want to put this, like dilute their emotion, like if they're creating something like right. this. I mean, you know, yeah, he probably is angry like you said where's the murderous rage and all this yeah stuff, this is know? the this film is the shape of david cronenberg's rage 
you know, yeah. this yeah. is it. This is his rage manifested, but better to write it into a movie than to physically, you know, do something, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's that way. It's like, it's, it's convenient sometimes for people to think that like, it's uh, I don't know, even like music or something, you know, like somebody's getting something out or telling a story in a song. And then they think that that's real life. And like, sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you can say yeah. stuff in a song it's, and sometimes you can't. And it's like, man, it's, you know, like you said, better it's in the song or in the movie or, you know, than and anywhere you know, else. And people have real feelings. Everybody's had feelings of doing something that you off. don't do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Cronenberg's even said, and we, we talked about this, I think on our last episode, but, you know, just because he writes a character a certain way, just because he's writing Nola or Juliana a certain way, that doesn't, that's not a stand in for every woman on earth. Uh, it's that character. And maybe it's partially based on his feelings for his ex-wife because they had a pretty contentious divorce. They had a custody battle. Uh, it was messy. It was not pretty. And this is him putting all those emotions out there. It doesn't mean that he thinks that all women are monsters. Yeah, well, <laughs> and know? this is his view on that, especially at an angry time. So it's like, right. you know, and then sometimes you're pissed off and you think things. So he's supposed to be dishonest about his feelings or yeah. how he sees the situation it's it's uh you know i'm not advocating for like people feeling like they should get racist if they feel that way but you know no, don't like, do that <laughs> let's try to please like, find those urges i don't know i'm just saying like art supposed to be like you're supposed to be able to express these things that's the whole point and yeah. uh you know you got to be open to like sometimes that's part of it sometimes there's going to be shit you don't like and yeah. uh that's just the way it is. Yeah, but even as a horror film, you know, even without digging into all of that subtext, like I think The Brood works like gangbusters because, you know, like we said, it is very compelling. The it's idea the of psychoplasmics is, it, what a concept, like to just spring out of somebody's brain, you know, yeah. what a concept to come from David Cronenberg, like what a cool idea. And the, the, and the idea that it doesn't always work the same way, you know, like the one guy got, uh, the thing on his neck, uh, it causes cancer in some people. You know, the one guy gets boils all over his body, and then Nola creates external fetuses that you know <laughs> that act out of her every emotion. It's right. it's an insane concept that the, the the idea that it's not really there's no basis in some sort of mythological monster or anything like that. Like so many horror monsters are based on some folklore or some other idea that's a little more grounded in something that we know this. I've never seen anything like that concept, not prior to this, at least, you know? Uh, so Almost the like idea a that, modern folklore, like, like you're, yeah. you're getting into, you know, what will be, you know, just yeah. uh, dealing with the science of it and just how close to possibly being real, it could be. Yeah, I mean, I know, the more I'm thinking about this too, like I, I, I love his. I think his women characters are really interesting. <laughs> I think Nola is is incredibly interesting. I think the um, yeah, she gets murdered, but the the school teacher is a very likable character. She's one of the probably the most likable character of the whole movie, honestly. Yeah, and okay. I'm thinking back to like Shivers and and Rabbit too. Like I think some of those are are really good. I don't know. Yeah, it's just uh. It, it's this one though going back to what you were talking about is uh the first one it felt like he really he really nailed that he does understand horror movies uh, oh, yeah. despite what some of those reviews i read said like i mean this has straight up horror movie scenes and uh, yeah and like slasher murders not slasher necessarily but you get what i'm saying and i think all of his movies could also be 
or all, all of the movies that we're talking about in this series, at least, could also be classified as science fiction because uh, they're all they all have a basis in science. This is sci-fi horror. Every yeah. single one of these. Absolutely. Uh, every single every single one we're talking about on this body horror series, every one of his films that is considered body horror could also be considered science fiction. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And he does go on to make like existence, which is a straight up sci-fi movie. Like he does do sci-fi, you know. Uh, but he, you know, he he's not one to be pigeonholed. And like like I said, uh, you know, and on a previous episode, he doesn't write horror specifically. He just writes and whatever genre takes shape is what what he goes with. Uh, he just happens to write some pretty horrific stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into a section of the, uh, before we wrap things up, where we talk about our further viewing picks for this episode. Uh, if you're going to pair The Brood with another film, what what is your further viewing on this one? For people who are interested in The Brood, what else would you recommend to them? Well, I, uh, I've got two picks here, so it depends on kind of how you want your evening to play out. If you I'm want... always so excited for <laughs> where I'm going to go with this, because <laughs> I never know where you're, which direction you're headed. So because The Brood is, uh, I think we've all mentioned it at some point, a bit of a slow burn, if you want to juxtapose it, juxtapose it with something a little more, uh, a little faster pace, but still with that, um, that very odd family dynamic uh i would actually go with frailty uh i, th- I think that one. would i think that would be I, it's a great movie anyway but i think you know the idea of families and the structure of families and especially in frailty like the father's uh personality over the children and influence on the children in this very uh high con it's a high concept thing for uh, for a child to grasp and you know and of course the ripple effects from that you know are what fuel the movie well that uh, movie also is very much about uh mental illness mm-hmm. oh yeah as this movie is and it's also very much about generational trauma because of the way that bill paxton's uh actions affect his son which of course you i'm not going to spoil the twist at the end of frailty but if you've seen it you know where i'm going with that and and how his actions affect uh, the next generation right right the the other one i had in mind was um hereditary uh just again that family dynamic uh generational trauma Mm -hmm. uh big rippling effects maybe not in the science realm but more in the supernatural realm hereditary uh, was actually my pick as well oh was it oh sorry man no no that's great i love that we're on the same page because it's the same thing it's once again it's about mental illness once again it's about multi-generational trauma and multi-generational abuse not just mother to daughter but grandmother to daughter to daughter you know right just like just like in this movie so like we're on the same page todd yeah. It doesn't happen often. Mark, on mark it viewer. down. It's a red letter day. <laughs> <laughs> my other one would be uh, hereditary would be my main one. That's, I mean, I think that would make a great double feature with this. Uh, I think Rosemary's baby as another uh, movie that kind of deals with motherhood in a really interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. And also mother Rosemary's baby is just fucking great. Anyway. Right. Yeah. It's again, just a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so weird. I went like a totally different direction. Oh, uh, all right. Like, well, it. I mean, I just feel Look like who's I talking. Mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're talking about family, uh, mental illness and 
and like familial uh, issues. Look who's talking. The baby fucking talks. He's somebody's crazy. Or somebody <laughs> thinks that the baby's talking. John Travolta. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, no. I was just thinking like movies that like kind of feel the same to me, I guess. And uh, so I was thinking of stuff like I was going like horror, like just straight horror movies, like uh, like Basket Case and yeah. uh, From Beyond. Uh, like movies where there's like, well, like basket case, because there's the idea that this like fucking weird growth and, uh, yeah. and it also is a killer and, and all of these weird things. And then, uh, uh, or, or he's not a growth in basket case, is he? What's the one where he's a growth? Oh, uh, that's brain damage. Brain damage. Yeah. Basket case. He is a, uh, like Just a, he's his brother. Weird twin. <laughs> so, yeah. he's, so it does feel like he's got the familial thing. Uh, yeah. but then like from beyond, I don't know something about the, the Lovecraftian thing, like just, uh, it's a little sciencey. It tries to be, it goes into like just alternate dimensions and making you fucked up because you see crazy stuff and then yeah. crazy. I don't know. It just felt like it'd be fun at the same time. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So for his follow-up to the brood, Cronenberg would actually revisit an earlier script. This is one that he had been working on. Uh, after Rabbit, like before he had been inspired to write The Brood, inspired, of course, <laughs> by his divorce. Uh, and that film, it, it would end up being Cronenberg's big, biggest success outside of Canada and kind of brought his trademark brand of body horror to mainstream audiences for the first time. Uh, the film in question is, of course, Scanners. And it's the movie we're going to be talking about on our next episode, nice. uh, starring, of course, the great Michael Ironside. Uh, it has one of the most famous gore scenes in the history of horror cinema. And <laughs> I am excited to rewatch it. I have also purchased Scanners 2 and 3 and Scanner Cop 1 and 2. So I'm just going to have a week filled Ooh. with exploding heads. I cannot <laughs> wait. I'm a bitch. I feel like I got to keep up with that. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, so anyway, you guys got anything else? No. Watch, That's watch it. David Cronenberg on Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, just keep we'll just keep on rolling. We got three more episodes. We're halfway through this series, then we'll move on to something else. But three more episodes, that's that's another month and a half of uh, cinema shots. So nice. Uh, before we wrap up, guys, tell the uh, listeners where you can be found on the internet. Hey, if Star Trek is your thing, please join me for my show, The Computer Resume Podcast, where I'll be covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for some reason with a rotating panel of podcasters, comedians, actors, authors, family, and friends and the occasional Star Trek cast member. Available now wherever you get your podcasts, on all the socials, at Computer Resume, and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond. It's amazing like you're that gonna... he just has that all memorized like that. It's no, really there's no way. <laughs> I feel like Computer Resume is cruising for a bruising as Paramount just gets more and more amped up about Star Trek, and they're just going to start throwing stuff all in. in. <laughs> yeah, and then you're just going to, like, I feel like you're going to make yourself crazy because you're gonna time try to going to keep going chronologically. I, yeah, that's why I'm, I'm really nervous about the time, especially with uh, the new show, Strange New Worlds, coming. I'm really looking forward to it, but there's part of me, like, as a podcast, are going oh what the fuck am i gonna do yeah well <laughs> you might, gonna you mess might have up my to, whole timeline you might have to play around with your format a little bit at some point yeah yeah but, we'll see what know, we can just, do just roll with the punches, well, i'll tell you what you do is you <laughs> you you get through uh this one this this series whose name i already forgot uh, Enterprise, <laughs> Enterprise, the, yeah. show, the show that's named after the most famous spaceship of all time, <laughs> right? Yeah, that one. Uh, that's uh, again and uh, starring uh, John Michael Higgins. 
And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, uh, no, it's like, it, it just, I don't know. I feel like you, you should just go ahead and get through that so that you never have to talk about it again. Yeah. Just <laughs> like ripping off a bandaid that takes two years to rip off. I know. I, know. I actually, Although just it's probably going to grow on you or maybe it already has. And, you know, I, yeah. Like, I mean, I just reached out to a uh, shuttle pod show and um, the Delta flyers. Uh, both of those shows are run by former cast members to see if we could do, if I could host a uh, crossover event nice. uh, between the two shows, I think that would be a lot of fun, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you know who knows maybe uh i'll kick uh will wheaton off the air and i'll take over the ready room <laughs> yeah i'm sure Good luck. i'm sure yeah yeah, yeah that's a very likely scenario Todd, todd's covering he's like the world's only star trek enterprise podcast right now and he's ready to take on will wheaton and his empire <laughs> right right <laughs> <laughs> gary you tell people where you can be found i'm at this is gary horn on on all this stuff yeah and i am at justin underscore bishop you can find the show at cinema underscore shock we are on twitter we are on instagram uh i am personally on letterbox the show is not but i do have uh lists of like all you know of all the movies we've covered on letterbox and everything so you can find that there or at cinemashock.net and you can find all the episodes you can find our merch links to our discord all that fun stuff there as always if you like the show share it with somebody share it with a friend share it with anybody anyway send them a link uh just tell them about it whatever just just get the name out there and give us some reviews you sell all that stuff I just want you know people to enjoy what we're doing. I mean, people like a who slut. <laughs> are you are you slut shaming me? Gary? You're a whore. Welcome to <laughs> Cinema a, Slut. You're a pod tart. <laughs> Cinema Slut is actually a great name for a podcast. <laughs> that's gonna be our off. That's gonna be the offshoot of this show where we only do. It's we're only discussing softcore pornography mm. <laughs> there it it's is gonna, it's going to be like the late night cinemax stuff red because, shoe diaries and all that shit because the fans demanded it <laughs> little little did we know we were trying to earlier in the uh, episode we we're trying to come up with the name for that show <laughs> <laughs> listen lizards or something <laughs> anyway anyway until we meet again may the wings of liberty <laughs> did you forget what oh. yeah you want to take it again? <laughs> no, we're done. Be excellent to each other. <laughs> 30 seconds after you're born, you have a past. And 60 seconds after that, you begin to lie to yourself about Johnny having the keys. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to do like Raglan's big like speech at the beginning of it, you know, in the Oliver Reed voice. And, you uh, know, uh, that wasn't uh, one of the options on the IMDb quote. I'm still page. waiting. It's an option me. in the movie. You watch the movie. <laughs> I'm still waiting on you to do like uh, whatever Johnny Keys's actual like if he has a monologue somewhere and he doesn't. Oh. He, <laughs> he does not get hired for his uh, monologuing skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is one, and it is considered quite a log. So. T- Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> this is awful. We gotta stop recording. We're going off the rails. <laughs>
Yeah, he's like best in show and like uh oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect and yep, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, that guy, uh he is in the newer Saved by the Bell. He's the principal of oh, yeah? high school. And uh there's an episode in Saved by the Bell where he is upset with they're having a class reunion and Zach and Lee or Zach and uh Kelly and everybody are there. And they're, he's like mad at them and they don't know why he's mad at them. And it turns out he's like, cause you guys act like you don't even know me. And they're like, we don't, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, I hung out with you all through high school and you guys pretend like you have no idea who I am. And they're like, you <laughs> did not hang out with us in high school. <laughs> and they call Lisa and Lisa answers. And she, they were like, do you know so-and-so? And she's like, Oh yeah, I freaking love that guy. He was so cool. Like blah blah. And they're like, what? Wait, did we know him? And then it starts flashing back. And they've inserted uh John Michael Higgins into all these famous scenes from Saved by the Bell. Like he's <laughs> everywhere, like in all episodes of Saved by the Bell, and like interacting with the cast. It's pretty clever. But anyway, they just don't remember him. Like he's he was just like apparently that uninspiring as a person. And he is essentially a lead character in a David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> Just a, are you saying because he is a, a, a forgettable white guy? Yeah. Like he'll show up later. And it'll be like, no, you know, I was in a bunch of Cronenberg stuff. I was in a rabid. I, I was really that. trying to figure out how you were going to link say by the bell. To David yeah, Cronenberg. I, went, I went a long way to get there, but I, just I enjoyed like the gonna, journey. That was a good journey. 